Good morning. And turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Two weeks ago, Leonard started us off in the Mark series and made it to about uh, verse 15. So this morning, we're covering uh, verses 16 to 31, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Let's just open our time in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a place like this where we can open it and preach freely from your gospel. Um, I pray right now for places that do not have this freedom. I pray you would be with the saints there, that you would give them boldness to continue um, meeting and teaching and evangelizing. I pray that as we study your word, that you would reveal your truth to us and that we would in turn uh, choose to follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Leonard, last week, he told us how Jesus' preaching is very similar uh, to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist came, and he was preaching, repent, the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus preaches a very similar message. Um, This is what Mark has chosen to have as the very first words that he records of Jesus. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel in, in verse 15. And so we see in the book of Mark that Jesus' ministry starts when John the Baptist ends. And so he arranges his book in a very particular way. We know that Jesus' ministry didn't start when John the Baptist ends from elsewhere in the Gospels. In the book of John, we have um, Jesus actually baptizing at the same time that John the Baptist is baptizing. They're baptizing in separate locations. Um, Jesus was near kind of Jerusalem, we think, on this, like near the bottom of the Jordan River, and John was kind of halfway up the Jordan River. Um, and, 
And, but then John the Baptist gets arrested. And it's kind of at that moment that it seems to um, trigger Jesus to then move up into the region of Galilee. <clears throat> Mark's gospel, so Mark's gospel starts with this uh, Jesus in Galilee. We kind of have, it's very difficult. Some of the commentaries I read, they, they, they tried to, you know, break Mark down into a, an outline, but Mark is very hard to outline. And so one of, one of the, an easy way to look at it is you have Jesus in Galilee, Jesus on the road to Jerusalem and, the, and his death, and then Jesus in Jerusalem and his death. So you kind of have those like three stages. Um, and so there, it kind of has this, this climax then where as Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem in the book of Mark, you know that the end is near because he only goes there once in the book of Mark. Um, to contrast this in, in John's gospel, we see him traveling there at least four times. And, and I would say the majority of the book of John takes place in Jerusalem. So it's, it's kind of a whole different look at Jesus' ministry. Um, also from the book of John, we're told that if, if everything Jesus did was written down, we just wouldn't have enough, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it all. So we know that Jesus did so much more than we have written down. And each gospel author is, is just arranging the narrative in a certain way to show us something about Jesus' teachings. It's not a, it's not a biography right? That's kind of how we like things to be. We want to, we want to read about someone's life and we want to see everything they did, that they did. Um, but the Gospels are not like that. They're trying to show us some truth, that the main teachings of Christ. And so the book of Mark is arranged in a certain way to give that to us. And also, Mark was likely written um, in the city of Rome, and so he's, he's kind of tailoring it to those people, potentially. And so he's, he explains certain Jewish customs that they might not understand, and different things like that. So, uh, Jeremy, I'll get you to put that map up. You kind of have a map. Um, perfect. And so you can see there, this is the region of, of Galilee. This is where um, our first half, um, I guess the majority of, of Mark, is going to take place. And actually, uh, Jesus' ministry, even more um, narrow just than Galilee, takes place in three cities near the top there, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And we know this because he condemns these three cities in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, I'll read it here. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he says it's going to be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And then he says in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So pretty clear um, message from Jesus that it seems like he had done so many works in those three cities that, that the fact that they did not believe um, was, was damnable to them. And so uh, we, we don't actually see many stories. We don't, we don't have any stories of Chorazin. And we only have, I think, two um, major stories happening in Bethsaida. We have a, about a dozen in Capernaum, so we don't even get an extensive um, knowledge of what's happening even in the cities that Jesus mainly taught in. But, um, but this is where Jesus focused his ministry. And it's interesting because he spends most of his time in Galilee and not Jerusalem. I feel like you know, Jerusalem being the center of the Jewish religion with the temple, and that's where kind of like your religious elites were. If you were a religious elite back in the day, you would have kind of expected Jesus to come and, and be in the temple or do something major in the temple. But he, he starts his, you know, he, he's baptizing and then he moves to Capernaum. 
Um, and we actually, he, he starts in verse 16 when he calls the disciples. We believe that they're in Bethsaida when he calls them. Um, but Jesus' hometown, he's from Nazareth. You can see Nazareth there, um, kind of the bottom left. But Mark chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that he, he had moved to Capernaum. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it's reported that he was at home. Um, Matthew chapter 4 also says, uh, tells us this, that uh, Jesus had moved to Capernaum. And it, this is interesting. If we turn to Matthew chapter 4, just a little bit more kind of background to Jesus' movements and, and where he was living. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, we're going to see that this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's very, it's very interesting because this means that Jesus was operating out of the historic northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. If you read your Old Testament, you'll know that the northern kingdom was the more wicked of the two kingdoms. It was the one that was um, overthrown first and dispersed first. Uh, but this is where Jesus chooses to focus his ministry. Uh, another interesting point is Nazareth would have been in the historic area of uh, um, Zebulun, and then you have uh, Capernaum in Naphtali. So you have these two regions um, in a direct fulfillment of prophecy. And again, very for someone looking ahead with only the Old Testament scriptures, it would have been quite confusing as they go through all of, especially Isaiah. Okay, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but then he's supposed to live in, in Zebulun and Naphtali. And you know, a lot of Jews at that day, they, because of all of this, they thought there was going to be two different messiahs. Um, and there, you know, there was lots of other reasons for that, but, but that was kind of part of what they believed. And so Jesus focuses ministry in these areas. Again, we don't have a ton of stories on here uh, of what's happening in, in this whole region, but this is where most of our stories do come from. And so then we come into Bethsaida in, in verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He says, Simon and Andrew, casting a net, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so we know from that, we know this isn't the very first time that Simon, Peter, and Andrew have seen Jesus. Because uh, if we, again, turn over to John chapter 1, we'll see that they, actually, they had had some experience with Jesus prior to this event. So John chapter 1 and verse 35. <clears throat> the next day, again, John the Baptist, standing with two of his disciples, he looked up at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him and said this. So, sorry, they heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So this might not, this definitely, our, our portion in Mark is definitely not the first time that they had an encounter with Jesus. We see that, that Andrew meets Jesus, believes that he is the Messiah, goes and finds his brother and brings him to Jesus. And so it's, it's likely that they, you know, they, they, maybe they came in and out of John the Baptist's uh, presence as, as he was discipling. They needed to, to fish to feed their families, but they would probably travel often down to hear John teach. And then once Jesus is proclaimed to them, then they, they start listening to Jesus' messages. And at some point, they end up back in Bethsaida fishing. Again, you know, it's not like today where maybe you could take a, a month, some people could maybe take a month off work. I imagine a lot of them lived more hand-to-mouth. Uh, and so they needed to continue to provide for their families. And so, but then what happens is Jesus comes and he says, you know, now you are to follow me. He walks alongside and he says, come follow me. So they know who Jesus is. They've already had a working in their heart, believing Jesus' words, believing what he had said. And so when the time comes and he says, follow me, they're ready. They got, they've gotten their hearts ready. They're ready to follow him. And what do they do? They leave everything to go and follow Jesus. They, they, they've been pondering Jesus' teachings, Jesus' words, and they believe that Jesus is worth leaving everything behind. He's worth leaving their fishing business behind. And they probably had, it's hard to say what, what, what kind of business they were running, but um, we find out from other gospels that they were, Andrew and Simon were partnered with James and John, um, and that we see in this passage that James and John's father had some hired servants, and so they had something of value that they were leaving behind, some boats, some nets. Uh, it wasn't just like they were, they were destitute, uh, they did have something that they were leaving behind. Uh, but they felt Jesus was worth the cost. So it seems that their hearts were ready, they heeded the call, they responded, and, and so what, how do we apply that to ourselves? What about, what about us? What about you? Uh, maybe you've been coming here to church your whole life, and you've never responded to that call. You, you've met Jesus, you've heard a lot about him, you've heard the teachings from this pulpit week after week, and the call to repent has gone out and you've not made that decision. And the call to repent is going out again this week. You're here, you're hearing about Jesus, you're, you're seeing what he does, and so I, I call to you to repent today. Turn from whatever it is that's holding you back and choose to follow Christ. Um, I know a, a guy that works with some of my friends, they were, they were witnessing to him, and he knew exactly the gospel. And he knew, he, he, he even believed that it, it probably was true. But he looked at his life and what he had, the popularity that he had in his friend group, and all that the world offered him, and he decided that it was not worth it to give that up to follow Christ. And what a shame that is. And so I ask you to look at your life and to look at Christ. Is what you have really worth holding on to? to give up an eternity with Christ, to give up the richness that he offers? Or, or is it really worth forsaking that for just a few more years of whatever pleasure you're involved in? So take a look at your life and count the cost and choose Christ.
Another thing that I want to point out in this section, verse 17, is we see that Jesus says to them, follow me, and then he says, I will make you become fishers of men. I want to highlight that, that word, I. It's not, you know, we make the choice to follow Christ, but then after that, everything that happens in our life is, is because of Christ. He's the one that will do the work in us. And to illustrate this, a few Old Testament passages, uh, Thomas shared from Exodus 6 this morning. I want to go back there. I, I'll read it. You don't have to turn necessarily, but in Exodus 6, there are seven times that God says, I will. He's making a promise that he will deliver them. And in Exodus 6 and 6, God says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. And so we see all of these things. It's not the only thing that the Israelites needed to do was to believe and to follow, and God was going to do the rest. And so again, that's for those here today, maybe, maybe you are saved, but maybe you, you, you've stopped following Christ for some reason. Maybe some sin has cropped up in your life, and it's time to cut that out, to try to give that up, and to continue following Christ in obedience. Again, let's turn over to Psalm 23, a very uh, famous psalm. You probably have this memorized. Psalm 23 and verse 1 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. It's God doing all of these things. And so we come back to Mark, and Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so we need to lean on, lean on Christ for everything in our Christian walk. It's, again, it's not the goodness that we can do. That's not what Christianity is, not a, a list of works that we need to accomplish to make God happy, and then eventually maybe we'll make it into heaven. We put our trust in Christ, and we are righteous. That moment that we put our trust in Christ, we are made righteous. And then we lean on Him for everything else to come after that. One more passage about this. Uh, John 15, Jesus teaching his disciples before he's about to leave them. John 15 and verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from Christ. So it's not, it's not a measure of the goodness that we can do for God. It's we trust in Christ and then he produces that fruit in us. And it's all for his glory. So now we're going to move on to uh, verse 21. And so we see in verse 21, it says, and they came into, or they went into Capernaum. So this is why I feel as though the calling of the disciples happened in Bethsaida, because we find out from other gospels that that was where um, the disciples were from, 
or uh, these four disciples are from. So then they come into Capernaum. And again, I, I love how many times Mark uses this word immediately. I think Leonard told us it was like 41 times in the gospel. It's very much a characteristic of this book. Um, but it, it's just like everything's just like happening, like boom, boom, boom. So immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And so I just want to mention kind of the significance of a synagogue uh, and how important it was for Jewish culture. We don't see a synagogue in the Old Testament, uh, and that's because most of what we read in the Old Testament is during the period of Solomon's temple, or at least, you know, they had the tabernacle and then they had the temple. So they had this meeting place. They were supposed to go there a certain number of times for feasts. Um, But then near the end of your of the kind of the Old Testament story, the temple gets destroyed. And then there's this, this period that we, that we don't really have any um, books in our Bible, about 400, 500 years. And in that time, the synagogues started to develop. They didn't have a temple during that period of time um, or during a certain period of time in there. And the temple is rebuilt, we read in, in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, but kind of in this period where there's no temple... Um, around these synagogues develop. It's, it was a place for meeting. At first, it was likely, kind of like how the church started meeting originally, it was likely just in people's homes, and then it became more of a formal place of gathering, uh, became entrenched in Jewish culture. And so it might have been houses and then converted into like a place of assembly. And this, this word in Greek for synagogue, actually, that's what it, one of the things it means is an assembly, an assembly place. So eventually these became very central buildings in a Jewish community. They were used for worship, prayer, study of the Torah, which is their, the Old Testament, as well as a place to gather for community events. Again, very similar to kind of like how a church has evolved today. And so Jesus, um, he, this is a great place because then every Sabbath these people would meet there to study the Torah. And so then Jesus could go there, and one of the traditions they had was if you were a, a, a traveling rabbi, a traveling teacher, then you had the right to uh, give an interpretation of whatever was being read. Or you might even be asked to, to read the weekly reading. It seems like they had sort of a, a liturgy that they would go through. Um, they would read you know, certain passages at certain times of the year. And they, I think they would try to read through all of the Old Testament each year. Um, and so the, uh, Jesus starts teaching them. And we see in verse 22, they are astonished at his teaching because his teaching style was different than what they were used to. He taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And so, if, if, you, if you're wondering what their teaching sounded like, we don't know for sure, but one of the things that we have access to, it's called the Talmud. It's a book of Jewish teachings of the rabbis from um, the time around Christ until you know, a few hundred years after Christ. And it's interesting the way that it, it, it's um, laid out is it will give a passage and then it will say, well, this rabbi has this interpretation, and this rabbi has this interpretation. It never, it never seems to give you a conclusion. It just kind of gives you a list of possibilities. And it seems as though that's probably what would happen in the synagogue is where um, one group would say, well, I follow rabbi so-and-so, and this is what he teaches us to do. And then another group would say, well, we follow rabbi so-and-so, and this is what he t-. And so all these different rabbis, they would cite each other and... I mean, we do that today, even in, in, in our own Bible study. We'll say, well, you know, I was reading in Wearsby's commentary, I was reading in MacArthur's commentary. We still kind of do those things because we don't have authority over, the, over God's Word, right? We are trying to study, we are trying to learn what it has to say. 
There are certain things that we know to be true just because the Bible says it very straightforward. Um, but there are still some things that we don't know. But <clears throat> if God in the flesh was standing here teaching us, He would be able to tell us exactly what it meant. And that would be what would be so different because He would be able to teach with authority. Just one example from the Talmud. I, I just kind of looked it up to um, just see what was some of the things that were being debated. And one of them is the Shema, the um, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love Him with your heart, soul, mind, strength. That passage. And it says that you shall recite it um, when you lay down and when you rise. And so uh, as they were, if you know your New Testament, you'll know the Pharisees were very much rule followers and they like to create rules for every aspect of life. And one of the things that was being debated is what does it mean by when you shall recite it when you lie down? When is it too late to recite it? You know, if I get home after midnight, is it too late or can I still do it? Or is that transitioning into the when you, when you rise portion? And there was actually, like, it might seem silly to us, but that was actually, like, one of the things that was debated, you know? Someone said, well, it's any time after this certain sacrifice was supposed to happen in the temple. So as long as the stars are out, like, you're good to go. And then someone else said, well, no, it's whenever evening starts, and then you have until midnight, and then you can't say it after that. And someone, like, there was all these different interpretations. Go look it up. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's, a, it's very lengthy, um, so you can get lost in there, but um, sometimes it's fun to go on those little tangents. But that's, so that's kind of what was going on. And so then Jesus comes and he's just telling them straightforward, like, this is what it is. This is what you like, need to do. This is what you don't need to do. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Do this. Focus on whatever. And so they were, they were awed by this. But then he does something even more amazing. We see in verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man who had an unclean spirit. Now, we're, I'm not, we're not sure, did this man just wander into the synagogue and you know, nobody noticed and then all of a sudden he's crying out at Jesus? Or was this somebody who attended the synagogue regularly, every week, nobody knew, but then all of a sudden the presence of Jesus brought out this response from this demon? We're not sure, or this unclean spirit. We're not sure exactly how it went down, um, but all, it, the way that Mark describes it, it's, it's almost sudden like, out of nowhere, there's this person, and they're crying out, Jesus of Nazareth, <clears throat> or sorry, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so this brings us into the next <clears throat> section that I want to talk about, is the significance of uh, demonic activity. We don't, we don't see, um, or I, you can kind of read it into maybe some places, but we don't really see um, an unclean spirit uh, possessing a person in most of the Old Testament. Um, but we see it a lot in the Gospels because Jesus is casting them out. He's showing his power over them. Um, for a little bit more on what uh, this unclean spirit might have been, there's lots of debate on it, but we can turn over to Revelation chapter 12. One possibility is that this unclean spirit was a fallen angel. And so Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and its head seven diadems. And this is, we believe, in reference to Satan. And verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And so we believe that that is, uh, you know, Satan, he, um, he 
rebels against God, and then he takes a third of the angels with him. That's kind of traditionally how it's been interpreted. And then in verse 7, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So we see that the dragon now has angels, so that's why this kind of makes sense. And then in verse 8, He was defeated, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient spirit who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So one of the options is that that's what we're reading about here, is that the, there is this presence of these unclean spirits, are these fallen angels. Um, whatever it is, it's, it's some kind of spiritual entity that has the power to possess a person and, and speak on their behalf, change the behavior. We see later on in the book of Mark, there's a, a boy who's been possessed and the, the, the demon throws him into the fire. Like he's able to control his body enough to, to uh, try to get this child to put himself into a fire and kill him. And so, and, and there's more stories that kind of show us kind of what they could and couldn't do. Um, in Matthew 8, 28, the story of Legion it says, and when he came, when Jesus came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, "What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time?" And so we see that they know what's in store for them. They know what judgment is coming upon them. Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Jesus is talking about the end of the world when he separates the righteous from the unrighteous. The righteous are on the left, or his right, sorry, and the unrighteous are on the left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so we see that those who continue to rebel against God in their lives on earth, people, will get the same judgment as those angels that rebelled against God in heaven. And so we should pause for a minute and consider one thing, the fact that these unclean spirits, they know exactly who Jesus is. They know what their fate will be one day. And there's nothing that they can do to change it. There's nothing that they can do to change it. As far as we know, that they did not get a chance to repent. They, they rebelled against God and they've been, they've been slated for eternal judgment ever since. But that's not how it is for us. And praise the Lord that, that we don't have the same fate as them. Even though we didn't deserve it, we have been given a chance to repent. We have been extended this offer of grace. And so even though we rebelled against God, and, and still you know, most of humanity right now is in rebellion against God. Uh, and we even nailed Jesus, God in the flesh. We nailed him to a cross and spit in his face and did all sorts of cruel things to him. Even though we did all of that, he still offers us a chance to turn back to him. That's what repentance means, to turn around and, and, and say, I'm, what I, where I was going, what I was doing, that was wrong. And I'm, I'm, t- I'm done of that and I'm turning around, and I'm looking to God. And so we have that chance, we have that offer. The demons do not, as far as we know. And so what, amazing, what an amazing um, opportunity it is for us to just accept that gift of grace that God offers us, and then we are free from that eternal judgment. Um, just a few more 
things about these forces. In, in Daniel, we also read about spiritual warfare of some kind. Um, and, and then in Ephesians chapter 6, this is where, as Christians, we are still in a battle. Ephesians chapter 6. And verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is, we don't wrestle against like physical people, but against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then Paul is going to exhort us to then take up the whole armor of God so we can stand against these spiritual forces, these unseen forces. And so it tells us all these things to put on, and then I want to highlight verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. One of the key things that we have as Christians, is we have the power of prayer. And we, it should comfort us to know that we serve the one that the demons fear. Every encounter with a demon, we see in Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 5, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you're the son of God, like why are you here? Like they, they're shocked to see him, they're scared, like what's he going to do? And so that's the, the God that we serve, is the one that these are afraid of. And we are told to be constantly in prayer so that we can resist these forces, okay? These forces of evil. They can't possess us as Christians. We're possessed. We, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God himself. So there's no room for, for evil spirits to come in, but we can still be attacked by them. And so uh, we need to be on guard. We need to be in prayer. And so they call uh, Jesus the Holy One of God. Jesus tells them to be silent and come out of him. Um, why does Jesus say this? He says this a lot, especially in his early ministry. Don't tell anyone. Um, the, the time is not yet. Um, I believe Jesus did not want his identity to become public knowledge too fast. Because if people knew um, either that he was the Messiah or about the power he had to heal, he would be swarmed with so many people that he wouldn't be able to go and teach in synagogues anymore. He wouldn't be able to hardly enter a city. And we see this at the end of chapter 1. Travis will get here next week, but in verse 45 it says, uh, Mark 1, 45, but he went out and began to talk. Oh, he had healed a man and the man didn't keep it quiet. Um, so Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he had to be out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So he could no longer go town to town preaching like he had been doing before and trying to reason with people. Because once the people found out who he was and what he could do, they were just swarming him from every area that was nearby. And so, um, this was this. If you're wondering why Jesus tried to keep people quiet, that was likely the reason. And so we see that the people in the synagogue they're amazed at his teaching and that it has authority because of the the miracle that he's done. So the reaction the reaction of the crowd it should show us uh, what should have been the reaction of the nation. When, when the nation, you know, heard his teaching, and it was a tough teaching, but then they saw his miracles, that should have been enough to be like, okay, well, I don't necessarily like what he has to say, but it must be true because of the miracles that back it up. But we see that what happens is there's, 
uh, lies start to develop because people desperately do not want to believe what Jesus is teaching. And so they, they come up with all sorts of different lies that to, to try to hypothesize, well, he gets his power from Satan, and Jesus has a response to that. And they say, well, then they have another argument, and Jesus has a response to that. And they just keep drawing, grasping at other arguments to, to just because they don't want to repent. They don't want to turn to Jesus. And so that should be uh, a lesson for us, that there will always be those who choose to reject God, no matter how compelling the evidence. It's been the same in every culture, and it's no different in our own culture, right? Um, there's, there's always seems to be just enough, if you, want to, if you want to reject Christ, there's always enough of something else for you to grab onto. It doesn't really answer all the questions, but you can, you can kind of close your mind off and go after it. But if you, if you read the Bible and you begin to understand it, you'll realize how much clarity there is in the teachings and how, how applicable it is and how true it is to us. And so, just to finish off this section, in verse 29, they leave the synagogue, they enter the house of uh, Peter's mother-in-law, which, again, just as a note, that means that Peter was married, which um, a large portion of Christianity would say that that he was celibate, but we see here that he has a mother-in-law, so he was married. She was ill with a fever, and so Jesus came, took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve. So notice the complete healing here, right? If you've ever been just getting over a cold or getting over the flu or getting over a fever, you, you don't feel like doing much for the next little bit. It takes a little while to recover your energy. But Jesus' healing was, was total. It was perfect. It was full. And so she was able to immediately get up and serve them. And so uh, when Jesus saves us, he fully heals us. He fully equips us for service. And are we then serving him? That's, that's what we are called to do. We're called to serve him, to follow after him and to serve him. And so in conclusion, Jesus is calling you to leave all and serve him. Will you heed this call? For those who are not saved here, you've heard this message probably many times, or maybe this is your first time, but Christ is calling to you to forsake all and to follow him, to repent of your sins <clears throat> and to turn and follow him. For those of you who are saved, are you following in obedience? Christ has enabled you to serve him. Will you serve? And so with that, we'll close. Our Father, we just thank you for this uh, time that we could spend in your word. I pray that as we leave this place, that your Holy Spirit would just continue to convict our hearts with the areas that we need to change. Whatever areas that we need to cut out of our lives, or, or leave behind so we can follow you better. I pray that you would show us uh, what it is that we need to do. I thank you for the opportunities that we have to serve you, that you have uh, equipped us through your spirit for service. And I pray that uh, we would just be compelled to do this out of love for you, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here who's not saved, that they would not leave this building until they've made themselves right with you, and that they would turn from their wicked ways, and that they would turn towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.